0: All right, let's take out our Bibles together, and if you will, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, once again. Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse 30, and our text today will take us down through chapter 5, verse 2. So Ephesians 4, 30. As usual, our text, our main text, will not be on the screens up behind me. When we refer to other texts, we usually put those up, but I like to not put the main text on the screens behind me uh, because I want you guys to to get out your Bibles and to look at it in your own copy of Scripture with us, and we'll be referring back to it time and time again in different places even after we read it uh, in the first initial time. Now, perhaps the primary way that we learn to do things as human beings is by imitation, right? Think of a little toddler listening to her mom and dad speak to her all of these words that she cannot say, and then she tries to form the the sounds with her mouth and and say the, the same things. Think of an apprentice watching a master craftsman at his work, and then trying to imitate him, trying to replicate what he sees the master doing. You might think of a young girl watching the Olympics and seeing those gymnasts do the, the graceful moves that they do, and then running right into the living room, right next to the couch, and trying to do the, the same things herself. I remember the very first time when I saw Kobe Bryant play basketball, and I thought, that's Michael Jordan. You could just see it in him. He was imitating Michael Jordan in so many ways. He had the fadeaway. It was the way that he dribbled. It was even in his mannerisms. He was imitating Michael Jordan, and that worked out pretty well for him, I think. These days, you can find a 1,000 young guitarists on the Internet in places like YouTube who are trying desperately to sound just like Stevie Ray Vaughn. You can find tons of them. They're imitating what they see. It's it's a form of learning. About 10 years ago, if you had heard me preach a sermon, you would have thought I sounded very much like two well-known preachers that I used to listen to and watch all the time. It was kind of learning by imitation. It was a form of learning the craft. Well, today, Paul tells us that we are to imitate God himself. We are to be imitators of God. Let's read our text. Comes in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 30, and I'll read down to chapter 5, verse 2. This is God's word through the Apostle Paul. Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I want to begin at the beginning of our text, right in verse 30, where Paul tells us, Do not grieve The Holy Spirit of God. What does that mean? How do we make sure that we're not doing this? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit and how can I avoid it? Now, notice right off the bat, before we get into the the very definition of what it means to do that, he says, don't grieve whom? The Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says... That we serve a God who is a mystery in his very nature. And one of the, the deepest mysteries of them all is that we serve one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is one God. It's not three gods. It's one God. But he's in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are all, each one of them, God. And yet they are not separate God's. It's a mystery. We don't understand it, and yet it's all over the Bible. In fact, here in this passage, you can find all three members of the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right in this passage. We've got the Holy Spirit in verse 30. He's the Holy Spirit of God, it says. In verse 32, you've got God, you've got Christ. Verse 1 in chapter 5, there's God. Verse 2, there's Christ, and there's God at the end of it. All three members of the Trinity right here packed within this passage. Well, this Holy Spirit of God is the one whom God sends to dwell inside of us when we become Christians. If you become a Christian, when you are baptized into Christ, that is the time at which God tells us he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. And so if you've become a believer today, if you have been born again and you've been baptized, you have this Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. It's a spiritual thing right? My, my, my little boy asked me the other day, Dad, how come when I got baptized I didn't feel anything when the Holy Spirit came into me? And it's because he's, he's a spirit, right? He's not a physical being. He's a spirit. He's the Holy Spirit of God. And so it's not producing physical feelings like a physical phenomenon would. It's a spiritual thing. But he dwells inside of each believer. In Acts 2.38, Peter tells the crowd at Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing to think about, that the Spirit of God himself dwells inside of you, if you are a believer and you have been born again. And this Holy Spirit is not just an it, it's a he. Over and over again in the Bible, it's a person. He has personhood. And because of that, he can be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what does that mean? How do we make sure that we are not doing that? There's all kinds of ideas that have been presented throughout church history on what this means. But what's so helpful is the context. Context. The verses right around this tell us how we grieve and how we can avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. Notice this section of Ephesians that we're in. Remember, what is Paul doing in this section? We've actually spent a lot of weeks preaching through this section, but we're still in this section where Paul is telling us, verse 22, look at verse 22 of chapter 4, he's telling us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and then verse 24, put on your new self. So when you become a Christian, you are made new in God and in Christ, and yet this is not a totally passive thing. When we become believers, we don't sit back and wait for this to happen. No, God says, you have to act out what I've done inside of you. There is a sense in which it's passive. There is a sense in which God changes your heart. But there's also a sense in which God says, no, you've got to do something. You've got to make a decision. You've got to decide to put off your old self, to put off your sinful way of life, and to put on the new self. And so Paul is saying when you don't, when believers act like their old selves, when believers continue to live in sin, they grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's how it happens. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 63, verse 10, it actually says when the Israelites rebelled against God, they, quote, grieved his Holy Spirit. You might remember another time where God was grieved. You remember in the Bible a time where God was grieved? Think back to Genesis 6, right before the flood, right before the destruction of all the earth except for Noah and his family and the animals that were on the ark. It says because of the, the sin of mankind that was all over the earth pervading mankind... God was grieved to his heart. Sin grieves God. And sin grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit when born-again Christians lie, as in what Paul talks about in verse 25. Verse 25, we had a whole sermon on lying. This grieves the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, the sin of anger grieves the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, the sin of stealing... Grieves the Holy Spirit. Verse 29, when believers in Christ talk in corrupted ways, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Or you can go down to verse 31, when believers act in bitterness and wrath, or anger, or clamor, or slander, or malice, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit inside of us is grieved when we sin. Think about it. He is the Holy Spirit. Unholiness grieves him. He dwells inside of us. And when we sin, he is there, right there, personally inside of us in the midst of sin. The Holy Spirit, God himself, inside of us as we sin. It is an amazing thing to think about. It it amazes me, first of all, that God doesn't strike me dead. When I sin, it's an amazing fact that God does not strike me down dead when I sin, especially because his spirit dwells inside of me. And the connection between our spirits and our bodies and our minds, and we would sin having the Lord's spirit inside of us. It's an amazing thing in his mercy that he does not strike me down dead when that happens. But in this knowledge that we can grieve the Holy Spirit... As God's children, one of our goals in this Christian life should be to grow so close to our Heavenly Father, so close to God in intimacy of relationship that we could not bear to sin because we know it would grieve His heart. We want to reach that point, and you might not feel like you're there. There are many times where I don't feel like I'm there. But we want to reach that point to where we couldn't bring ourselves to sin. Why? Because it would grieve God's heart. And we love him. We could, couldn't bear to do that. For those of you who are married, how would you respond if a stranger came up to you and propositioned you to spend the night with them, stranger of the opposite sex, and they said, I want you to cheat on your spouse with me. I hope the way that you would respond would be something to the effect of, Absolutely not. I love my wife. I love my husband. How could I do such a thing? And it would grieve their heart. I could not do that to them. I would never do that to them. It would grieve their heart so deeply. Right? What about with God? Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph in Egypt? He's sold into slavery by his brothers who were jealous of him. And he he ends up as a servant in the house of one of the Egyptian leaders, wealthy man named Potiphar. And Potiphar, because the Lord was with Joseph, because the Lord gives success to everything Joseph does, Potiphar sets him over his entire household, everything in the house. But one day, as Joseph is dutifully going about his work, obedient to Potiphar, Potiphar's flirtatious wife comes up to Joseph and grabs him by the robe and says, Come sleep with me. This is his boss's wife. And what does Joseph say? He says, How could I do such a thing? And sin against God. That's what we want. Maybe we're not there yet. But that's what we want. The ultimate power to resist sin and temptation comes. When your love for God. Is so deep and so strong. That you could not bear to grieve him. That's what we want as Christians. Do you want that? Do you want to be faced with temptation. And to say I couldn't do that. Because I love God so much. If like me, you feel like, I'm, I don't know if I'm there, but I want to be there. The path to getting there is to spend time with our Heavenly Father in relationship. To spend time cultivating our relationship with Him in God's Word and in prayer. Day in and day out. Every day, find a time to get with God. Every day, find a time to cultivate that relationship with God. Put in the quality time with the Lord so that you can grow in your love for him. Every day, come to the Bible, not as a means of knowing more about the Bible, not as a means of of being the smartest Christian around, but as a means of having more of God, of tasting and seeing that he is good. And as you spend time with God in prayer and in the word, he will cultivate your love for him. And if you do this day by day, month by month, year by year, I am a believer. I believe that one day, if I continue on this path, I might reach the point. I believe I will reach the point if God lets me live long enough. To where I would resist sin and temptation. Not because of selfish reasons. Not because of practical reasons. But because I could not bear to grieve the heart of my Father in heaven who I love, and who loves me. Do you want that this morning? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But now let's let's look at a different aspect of our passage. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And actually in our passage there are two ways that he tells us to imitate God. The first comes in verse 32. Verse 32, it says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Notice the imitation language there. As God, you forgive each other just as God has forgiven you. We're going to imitate God's forgiveness. Now, in 5 verse 1, when Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children, the the idea that should come up in our minds, the idea that I think Paul had in his head right here is the picture of little boys imitating their dads, right? Little boys imitate their dads. It's just natural. It just happens, right? This this happens all the time. Think of all the toys that they sell to little boys so that they can pretend to do the things that dad does, right? Get out and mow the yard with my little tykes lawnmower because dad mows the yard. We, we sell, we, we buy them toys of little plastic screwdrivers and hammers and things like that because I'm going to do the work that dad does. I want to imitate dad. The other day, I was in the office, I was writing a sermon, and I got to looking at old pictures of my kids. I've got to be really careful with this because sometimes I can get in like a a rabbit hole and all of a sudden I've wasted 45 minutes because I'm looking at pictures of my kids. Like it is, it's a pull and you just in it, you know, heart and soul sometimes and maybe tears are running down your face because of the way it is. I'm sure some of you understand. But I got to be careful there when I'm at work because I can get unproductive real quick if I start looking at pictures of my kids. But in one picture, there's me and Owen. I'm holding Owen. And we've got on the exact same shirt. We found a little bitty polo shirt that looked exactly like the one I was wearing. And we just thought it was the coolest thing in the world that we were twins that day going to church. Or in another one, he's wearing my shoes. You know, and they're, they're, they're just tons too big for him. Has, has there ever been a little boy that didn't wear his dad's shoes? Has that ever even happened in a family? Right? We've, we've all got pictures like that. Or wearing my hats that they are they're way too big for him. We imitate our parents when we're kids. And so Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's our Father in heaven. We want to imitate him. And one of the ways I want to focus in on today is verse 32. Let's imitate God's forgiveness. His forgiveness. Forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. The power to forgive others when you are wronged comes from understanding the forgiveness that God has given you. That's where the power to forgive other people comes from, to understand the depth of the forgiveness that you have received from the Lord. If you understand little of God's forgiveness, you will have a hard time forgiving other people. If you don't understand much of God's forgiveness to you, you will have a hard time forgiving other people. You will be that kind of person that holds other people to standards that you don't even live up to yourself. You will be that kind of person who holds a grudge against other people and has a hard time letting it go because you don't understand the forgiveness that you have received from the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said to the sinful woman of the city who came into the Pharisee's house And wet Jesus' feet with her tears. And dried them with her hair. And anointed them with ointment. What did he say about her? He turns to the Pharisee and he says, She loved much. Why? Because she was forgiven much. But then he says, The opposite is this. He who is forgiven little, Loves little. Now what does he mean there? He doesn't mean... That there are those of us who have only had to be forgiven just a little bit. And then there are others of us who had to be forgiven a whole bunch. That's not what he's teaching. He's teaching that if you think, I'm pretty good, it didn't take a lot for God to forgive me. It didn't take very much for God to forgive me. If you think that, then you will be lacking in love toward other people. You will be lacking in mercy Toward others, you will hold grudges more easily. Bitterness will creep into your life. Notice in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness be put away from you. How? You've got to understand what it took for God to forgive you. What did it take for God to forgive you? Now, in one sense, we should understand that question from our own personal lives. Think about your own sin. Think about all the ways that you have sinned. It is no little thing for God to forgive you. But you can always find someone else who sinned more than you did. You can always find someone else and look at them and say, at least I'm not like that, right? So for a second, and when when we take this question to account, we should all step back and look at it, not from the standpoint of our own sins, but from the standpoint of what it cost the Father. What did it take for God to forgive your sins? What did it cost God to get your forgiveness? What did God have to do to forgive you? He had to torture his own son, whom he loves, and then put him to death. He didn't just put him to death, it wasn't just a moment, that would have been hard enough. He had to torture his own son. He had to pour out his wrath on his own son. Do you have kids? If someone asked you to do what God did to Jesus for them, would you do it? I wouldn't. He had to torture his own son and put him to death. And that is what it cost for God to forgive you. Isaiah chapter 53 said the Lord had to crush him. That was the price of your forgiveness. And when you look at it that way, what if somebody slanders you behind your back? What if someone breaks their word to you? What if someone attacks you in public? What if someone has hurt you deeply? It does not take near as much for you to forgive them as it did for God to forgive you. It's not even close. You owe others your forgiveness. Think about that. You owe other people your forgiveness. You have been placed into a debt of forgiveness to other people because of the way that God forgave you. Because of what it cost God to forgive you, and therefore imitate God in his forgiveness. Therefore, verse 32 forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be tender hearted to one another. Tender hearted, not harsh, not hard hearted with one another, not lacking in forgiveness, but tender with one another. Why? Because thank the Lord he's been tender hearted with me. Thank the Lord he is not hard-hearted with me. And so really what what all this is saying in verse 32 is imitate God in the way that you treat others. Imitate his heart and you know what it is because you've received it if you're a Christian. If you're a born-again believer this morning, you've got to dig deep into what you have received from God so that you can give the same out to others. But that is not the only way we are to imitate God in this passage. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter 5. It says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's that same imitation language. You do this as he did it. Just as he did it. Imitate him. We're going to imitate Christ's sacrificial love walk in love, just as Christ did. And how did Christ love us? How did he love us? He gave himself up for us. He sacrificed himself to God for us. So therefore, what should our love to other people look like? It should be like Jesus's love. It should be sacrificial. God has called us to get up every day and to die to ourselves, and to put the needs and wants of others ahead of our own. The world will tell you its definition of love. The world will tell you this is what love is, and pretty much what it is, is it's a feeling that we get inside of ourselves, and we want someone else to give us that feeling. We want to be with someone else because they give us a good feeling about ourselves. And that is love. And it is the ultimate sin in the culture today to prevent someone from having that experience. From having whoever they want to give them their own feeling of happiness. And that is love. And that is not the way, brothers and sisters, that the Bible defines love. How does the Bible define love? Well, 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for one another. That's profound. It's 1 John 3.16. The way that we know what love is is by Jesus laying down his life for us. That's how we define love. We wouldn't know what love is apart from that. In the same way, we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. We ought to lay our lives down for others. We ought to put the needs and wants of others ahead of our own and sacrifice ourselves for them. Many of you know what this is like by experience. Many of you have done this in a big way. What I'm talking about is those of us who are parents. Parents. Every time a baby is born, the parents go through a crash course in dying to self. Do they not? A crash course immediately. right? Sacrificing your own needs and wants and comforts for the needs of that baby. You don't eat like you want to. You don't sleep like you want to. You don't have downtime or entertainment like you want to. You're bleeding money. You're gaining weight. You're irritable. It's super hard. But it's also a deep and abiding joy at the same time, is it not? It's a joy at the very same time. You're sacrificing yourself for the good of someone else. You're putting their needs and wants ahead of your own. God has called all of us to do this. You don't have to be a parent to know what this is like. You just have to look at Christ. Look at Christ. People who are are not parents, people who are not married in here, listen, Jesus was never a parent. Jesus was never married, and Jesus is the ultimate example of this. So you can do this even if you're not a parent, even if you've never been married. It doesn't take that. It just takes looking to Christ and following his example of sacrificing yourself for others Think about what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you've got to wake up every day. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Think about Jesus' life. What was it like for him waking up every day and letting others dictate what he did? Letting others dictate what he gave and the time that he spent. It was all about God and other people. God and other people. God and other people. He didn't even consider Himself in the, the equation. He gave and gave and gave until he could give no more. He literally gave his blood, sweat, and tears. And he gave it not just for the people that were around him. He gave it for you. He gave it for you. We have been called to love others by sacrificing ourself for their good. Sacrificing our time our schedules, our energy, our money, our comfort, our possessions. Jesus gave it all. Jesus gave it all for you. What are we giving for others? How can we imitate Christ's sacrificial love? How can we give our very lives for the good of others? There may come a day where God calls you to give your very life, your last breath, your beating heart. There may come a day where God calls you to give that for someone else. And if that day comes, I pray that we would do it. But until that day, perhaps what might be harder for some of us is to go through every day and give of ourselves in our lives to give of ourselves to God and to others. To do what Romans 12.2 says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, Romans 12.1. How do we do that in our daily lives? Well, that's up to each and every one of us. But may we imitate God. May we imitate Christ. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Right now, we're going to take some time to pray and to respond to the Lord from what he has laid upon our hearts. Each week here at Columbia Christian, we take some silent time and reflective prayer. We ask that every single person respond to God's message in an individual way, and that's why we give this time of prayer. There might be those of us who need to respond in a public manner here in just a moment, but there are Not not any of us who don't need to respond to God, to what he has just laid upon our hearts. And so we give this time for you to pray and for you to do that to the Lord, you and God. And then after a few moments of silent prayer individually, we'll come back together. and We'll have a, a time of public invitation where anyone who needs to respond to the Lord's word in that way can do so. Let's pray.